Hey everybody, welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm your host, Brandon David. Another info-packed episode this week. We have Alex of VGI, which is a family office, so not quite an angel investor and not quite venture capital. He's sort of finding his way into rounds uh, and he's been pretty successful at it. They got into Green Thumb Industries very, very early. It's a fantastic episode interview for someone that's thinking about investing in the cannabis industry. Maybe you've done some real estate like they've done before. And now you're just sort of dipping your toe in. It's an awesome playbook for how to get in and how to be successful investing in this industry. Alex is great. Really enjoyed the conversation. I learned a ton. You're going to learn a ton. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Alex, thanks so much uh, for being on, man. This is a pretty quick turnaround. What did we connect for the first time like two weeks ago or something? And, And now you're on the podcast. But welcome, man. How are you? Thanks, Brendan. Yeah, it's good to be here. I'm glad we were able to connect and and I'm looking forward to chatting. So I think you're going to have a really interesting perspective because like you're not a traditional investor in the sense of venture capital, right? Um, But you're not exactly an angel investor. Um, And I want to talk a little bit about what a family office is or or what, what that your place in sort of the investment world. But let's start with just what is VGI? Yeah, so V Gas Village Investments is a Chicago-based family office. We traditionally were in real estate and private equity. In 2014, we saw sort of what was happening in cannabis. We were in the right place at the right time in Illinois and Chicago, which had just launched its pilot program for can- medical cannabis. And we're fortunate enough to invest in GTI, Green Thumb Industries. That was our first portfolio company, great first company to get involved with. So 2014, how long had the office been operating prior to that, to 2014. Yeah. So when, when I think about a family office, I feel like that term is really like loosely thrown yeah. around all the yeah. time. Right. And people are like, well, what does that mean? You know, what, what is, does that mean? A certain amount of you know assets under management? Does that mean it's structured a certain way? So yeah, I, I would say at the time, you know, we were going from being sort of a high net worth individual with sort of my parents organizing ourselves, bringing more people on sort of in the periphery, you know, from attorneys and advisors and things like that. And you start sort of doing these angel investing, making some of you, some of your own investment decisions yourself. Some other family offices might hire professionals. What basically happened is uh, my brother, myself, and my mom, after my dad unfortunately passed away from, from brain cancer, actually sort of took over and became the investment professionals ourselves. And so we think that's kind of something that sets us apart from other family offices. Got it. So what was the money originally from? What was your dad doing prior to, to this? Yeah, so he was a real estate developer in Northwest Indiana. So Northwest Indiana is basically just a suburb of Chicago. Uh, just, you know, the demographic and like who they are, most of them work in Chicago. And there was just this huge boom in the 90s and early 2000s. When we think about how, you know, happening real estate was at that time, he was doing uh, sub-developments, you know, entire kind of communities grew up in that area. And a lot of people wanted to live in that area and community in Chicago. And so that was sort of that business. And then in 06, saw what was happening. And I remember he, he said this to my neighbors. He goes, you know, when your uncle's a home builder, you know, it's time to get out. And so <laughs> he, got in, he got out in 05 and 06 and then sort of transitioned to investing full time. Wow. What an amazing exit point. Yeah, uh, it, was, it, was, it was good timing and a great learning lesson about knowing when to get out. Well, we share being sons of real estate developers. I'm, I'm the same. Um, he got out much earlier than that. 
um, which, but that's a nice move at that, at that time period. Okay, so then um, you sort of start to formalize the team and everything and create this office. And in 2014, I mean, I think a lot of people were thinking about cannabis, but what sort of brought you to it initially? Why, why cannabis? Yeah, a couple things. You grew up in a very progressive family that was sort of very open to trying things. You know, I think moderation was key, but there was never this sort of idea that you shouldn't try things, you shouldn't sort of express yourself. And so I think that being one aspect, growing up in Chicago, my brother and I had experimented with cannabis, you know, being in the city, going to high school, things like that. And then a big thing was, you know, my, my dad battling cancer we saw some of the benefits of using cannabis to relieve nausea and things like that, but using uh, black market cannabis flower and things like that. We also saw some of the downside, you know, there, there is anxiety that can be induced from using cannabis and not really know, knowing what you're doing. And so we said, Hey, there's a huge upside to using this, but it has to be the right way. It's the right form factors, the right dosage. And it's talking to the right people like bud tenders who have been trained in this. And that's an important Avenue. We want to, really expand because a lot of other people are going to go through this too. And so that was really an important stepping stone for us as well. Got it. Okay. So um, I, that's interesting. I find most people have some personal connection, right, to it. And that, and that's sort of the, the impetus to get involved. So then you start going to conferences and trying to meet people. Or I, I think it's a very interesting lesson for people that are like, how do I start investing in this industry? You know, how do I learn about it? Yeah, cannabis, I think, was and continues to be one of the most unique investment landscapes you can get into because I continue to think most of the smart money is sitting on the sidelines. So you can be a retail investor, you can be an angel investor, you can be a venture capitalist, you can be like us where we sort of sit in between this angel investor and venture capitalist and make a lot of change, find a lot of opportunity. Uh, and you're not pushed out like you would be in any other traditional industry because that capital is sitting on the sideline. You can go to conferences. I, I've never seen people more willing to network on LinkedIn. I mean, I think that's how you and I connected, uh, you yes. know, literally nonstop. People are so eager in the cannabis industry and so excited about it to just connect on LinkedIn. I found that to be one of the best platforms. Uh, and again, because all this capital is sitting on the sideline, everyone has a voice and everyone has an opportunity if they want it. I think that's very well said. I think the cannabis industry, there's this narrative of like, oh, it's really hard, right? There's all these regulations and everything. But I totally agree with you. It certainly helped me in getting into deals, access to other investors. Like I also do stuff in real estate and it's totally different. It's just like everybody has their place and that's it. And yeah, like cannabis is this huge mobility factor to it, which I think is, you can be anything you want in this industry. Um, not to be too, uh, too pumped up, too hyped man today. Um, so then you start researching cannabis. At what point do you come to GTI? How, how does that come to be the first one? You know, I think like most things in life, you, know, you can put the effort, but there's a, a certain level of luck involved. And so we recognize there's a lot, there was a lot of luck. So I think the second cannabis company we talked to was Green Thumb Industries. We had talked to another one in Chicago. GTI, we had a connection through Dina Rollman, who's their senior vice president of government affairs. She was actually our attorney in a prior life before getting into the cannabis industry. Okay. So great lead in, you know, got to you know, know the, the founders. And I think that's one of the most important things for getting comfortable because at the time, 
everyone was going, what are you doing? This is really high risk. And even in, you know, in Chicago and in the Midwest, it was still a very like taboo subject going out and making the investment in cannabis that early. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's certainly changed a lot in Chicago since then. Uh, I think you said on the phone the other day, it's the Silicon Valley of cannabis. Is that a real thing or you're just saying that now? <laughs> you know, I think uh, Cranes, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's like a business publication in Chicago, but they're running with that that narrative a lot. The Silicon Valley or the, the, the capital, the cannabis capital, you know, when it comes to capital markets, you know, of the U.S. And I think it's an interesting notion. People, especially like international people who, will ask me about like you know what's the deal with chicago like wh where is that coming from that seems like it's coming from left field which i think it's funny so random yeah 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 to me it's it's right place right time with the illinois medical pilot program it's there's really deep private equity and family office background in chicago so a lot of like high net worth families and individuals willing to sort of front the industry early on and then you had a lot of people with operational experience like on the private equity side which translates really well and then I like to say a little bit of Midwest value spiced into there. So, you know, we don't have acreage. We don't have med men. I could say a lot of things about both those companies, but they sort of reflect, you know, private equity and California. We don't need to go into that too much. And, and so I think there was a little more humbleness uh, in the Chicago aspect that, that helped too. I love the way you said that. That was very <laughs> delicate. Um, so you kind of fall into GTI. After that, do you start like building a thesis at that point? Is there a part of the industry that you get excited about? How, how does that evolve? Yeah, because it was in our backyard, essentially, the limited license state MSO model was sort of right there. You know, so we went from Green Thumb Industries to, to Cresco Labs next. And it was sort of very easy to see how similar they, they were, how uh you know, the model was going to work, how applying for licenses, and at the time, significantly less competitive licenses once they got a grasp on how to apply. So like very early on, GTI and Cresco are winning these licenses left and right, not a ton of competition. They can go into these limited license markets in the Midwest and East Coast and continue to do well and continue to just organically win licenses, which is great for like shareholder value, which we really appreciated. And so that sort of like began where, where our investment foray into cannabis was. And then we sort of started looking around and really doubled down on the MSO model before only like in the last 24 to 36 months, would I say we really expanded out of the MSO model sort of into the ancillary space, the, the tech space, brands and things like that. And is that because you didn't think there was enough good MSOs or... They couldn't handle as much assets as you wanted to deploy. Why, why go beyond that? Yeah, early on, it, it's getting comfortable with management. And so, you know, the one investment I'll make that we were not super happy with, but I love having it as a learning lesson is we invested in, in acreage holdings when all these MSOs are going public and there's sort of these lofty valuations going on. And we really got ahead of ourselves just looking at, well, you look at these comps you know, look at where things are trading. Here's the momentum without really paying attention to the people behind it and the assets they held, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the financials at the time and details. And so that sort of gave us this nice pause to go, hey, let's really look at this closely. And so that, you know, we got into companies like Verano and Ascend Wellness and really love their management team, love where we got in and continue to be shareholders, have not sold any shares of those companies. Um, but, you know, there's lot, lots of those companies have had operational experience in the past that we think has translated really well. There's definitely some MSOs out there that we think have made more mistakes along the way, frequently because they sort of lack that operational experience. 
Yeah, very, very interesting. I mean, look, um, I don't believe that high tide does raise all boats. <laughs> I've never really understood that saying. You you have to pick the right teams. You have to do a good job in selecting. Thank you for your honesty there. I think it's um it's cool that you're willing to look at those mistakes and say like, hey, this is we fucked up. Like it's okay. Now, if you had to go back and do it again, would you have just done a, a smaller dollar amount and say like, okay, this is too this is more risky than we assumed or would you just avoid it altogether? I think we would have avoided altogether the specific specific mistakes we've made. I don't think, you know, if you've done your diligence and you feel confident in the investment that you're making, and at the time you've weighed everything, I don't think we've re really regretted the dollar amount if it made sense at the time. You know, as long as you're not really getting ahead of yourself in terms of the investment size, if, if everything makes sense at that time, I don't know that I've ever regretted, hey, I did more than I should have. If I felt confident, it's more like, hey, you overlooked these things. You got caught up in hype. That's why this is a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, put yourself in the landscape sort of here as a, as a family office, right? Like when you get into some of these deals, some of these are big rounds, right? And they, they may have a venture lead or a private equity lead. How do you get into that? How do you get the access? You know, talk to tell, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. yeah, Brandon, I love that question. It's it's probably my favorite part about this game of, of investing kind of, you know, the, the early days, these MSOs begged you to invest you know, they had to, they had, they had no other option. And, and that was true. Even in, in 2020 during COVID lots of investors backed out when, when GTI hit like five bucks in April, 2020 or something like that, no one was investing. And so we came across a few opportunities in some MSOs. And I remember we invested in one round over the course of like six weeks. Like it just stayed open. We kept, based on new news coming in, we kept upping our allocation. We kept going like, hey, we'll do more. Wow. Two or three weeks later, we'd, we'd do it again. And now that, that would never happen. I mean, no, no shot at, at any company like that. And so now the, the big game is, am I putting, am I a value add investor? Am I putting the work in ahead of time? And so it, right now, if we identify a company we like, Sometimes we're putting in 15 to 18 months of relationship building with the founder, making introductions, showing how we can make connections and add, add value. And, and when you finally sort of get to that point, you know, that, that round may be oversubscribed, maybe you're already on the cap table, maybe you're not. And if you're not, it, it's really imperative that you have already built that relationship. Mm -hmm. And so we love doing that. Having said that, we also recognize how much more competitive it is now. So if I haven't put that relationship that time in and I don't have a relationship, I'm probably going to have to go find a group doing an SPV and sort of weigh my options and see how that affects what that investment opportunity looks like. And that's sort of becoming the new norm is if you don't have this in with this company, if you haven't built this relationship, maybe your connections will go so far. But for the most part, a lot of these, like you said, lead investors, groups doing SPVs are gobbling up these entire rounds. Well, and that's really the difference between the public and private placements right and and how much do you think about that like do you think about the allocation one way or the other how it should how it should be not in terms of, of strictly like how much allocation to one side or the other in, in any type of ratio but i would say we see lots of trends and so from 2014 through 2018 you know we were heavily on the private side just because the the actual public cannabis companies were, were not anything anyone wanted to invest in at that time then these mso's started going public we were participating sort of in those private to public arbitrage opportunities where they'd uplist and you'd, you'd get some significant gain on your investment fairly quickly. 
And then they really got ahead of themselves valuation-wise and we saw those come down. And so we really sort of slowed any buying of, of public uh, companies at that time in the cannabis space and really started transitioning to the private markets, which we sort of have done for the last two years. I will say, Brandon, in the last six months, especially since the election, the runoff happened, we feel like since the large MSOs have sort of had a pullback valuation-wise, when we weighed the private to public market opportunities, it feels like the you know big MSOs and those second-tier MSOs as well, like the Jushis and their strategies and things like that, look really appealing right now. And I don't know that we've seen like private uh, valuations necessarily come down as much to reflect that. So right now, I'd say we're sort of favoring public stocks relative to private stocks, and we're waiting to sort of see how does that change over time. Where does this sort of continue to play out? Interesting. Very interesting. Um, how do you think about check size and sort of evaluating that? I mean, obviously, sometimes there's only so much left in the round or whatever, but um, especially like when you're buying public, how do you think about the what numbers should go into this? On the private side, you know, we're... We write a check size, again, somewhere in between where like a lead investor would come in and where like just a sort of a silent angel investor would be. And we're sort of in the middle and we have sort of our wheelhouse of what we're comfortable with. And what we try and do is add value as much as we can. And so we find that, especially with sort of like smaller companies like Leaf Trade, for example, is a tech investment of ours that we're really close with. We've been able to add a lot of value to that company based on check size, but really based on the connections we have and our ability to sort of bring capital in. And so even if those other investors are writing small to medium-sized checks, most of them are angel investors, some of them are leads, we're really helping them you know, raise the Series A, add a lot of value to the company, make connections to some of the other MSOs we've invested in. And so we think that check size matters, but how much value can we add? Now, if we're investing in uh, you know, a larger private company, you know, a tech company raising at 500 million, our ability to truly add value there is going to be a little more limited. So if we feel like, hey, let's come in, let's let's show that we have some confidence in the company and perhaps write a larger check, you know, maybe we're a little more comfortable because it's a growth stage capital, it's the B or C round, and we're more comfortable with that in the first place, you know, adding value, we're not going to be quite there. But if we can write a larger check size, we feel like it speaks volumes to sort of our confidence in, in the founders and the team. I see. Interesting. Like, it's kind of more about um the other parts of it rather than like the actual dollar amount for you which i think is kind of interesting like where you can add value i think a lot of investors say that that's the thing that gets passed around a lot you know what what else do you do besides money when like most people want money you know um <laughs> but but like um is that real i mean yes certainly there are big funds like if you go to Andreessen Horowitz they've got every resource you know they've got everything dialed in but you're a pretty small organization, right? So when you say you're going to help a lot, is that in introductions? Is that like right. sit on the board? Like, you know, how, how are you helping? Yeah. yeah, so we're not in a position to sit on a board or lead around. I think we're in a unique position in very specific companies. And so it's almost like we're in Chicago and we're sitting in this Midwest, East Coast, limited license framework with all these MSOs dominating half of the country. And then we've got a bunch of, brands and sort of cultural change in cannabis sitting on that West Coast. And there's this bifurcation of those markets and the, the brands want to come to the rest of the country and the MSOs 
want to win this game basically right mm -hmm. and so they need they know over time that they will need to bring in some of those brands and it could be brands it could be a number of other things and so because we have these early relationships with these mso's and because they literally live five minutes from me in chicago and we've been able to sort of build this relationship and, and you know you you're able to reach out to them you can actually back up the claim that you can make those connections mm -hmm. you know it's, and again that's one of, I think one of the most important changes we're seeing happening is that connection going on. When I talk to a lot of California brands, they're going, Hey, I'm putting everything I have into competing in the most competitive cannabis market in the world right now in California. And I'm doing okay, but I would love to come to Michigan or Illinois with, uh, you know, nine to 12, 13 million people and a limited number of brands, let's say with my form factor or my, my, you know, what the cultural aspect I'm going after and I can do quite well. And so a lot of them are excited about that. And I think MSOs have the upper hand, but they're also going, hey, we can build some of the more traditional SKUs organically, but there's a number of things like can, the Lotos beverage, right? We're an investor in can. Like, I think that is something the MSOs may try on their own, but there's a reason that that company was started in California. And mm -hmm. I think that that correlates to a lot of other brands and will continue to be the case. And so there's this recognition that they kind of need each other the MSOs and the brands on the West Coast. And I think that will sort of continue to proliferate. Yeah, the CAN headquarters is maybe like three streets from where I'm sitting in, in Venice now. Um, let's talk about beverages a little bit. That's certainly ancillary as far as I'm concerned at this point. Um, it makes up a small percentage of market share. I agree, CAN has done a lot of great stuff. I know them well. They've been on the podcast before. They're great at marketing. Um, there's Fantastic. a lot. There's a number of beverages in California today, some low dose, some medium dose, some high dose. Most people still buy flowers. Um, when you looked at that market, was it about bringing them to Illinois? Was that sort of the, the move there or why can, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. Can really stood out. I think that investing in brands has been and continues to be really difficult in cannabis. The, the stickiness of brands crossing over states. I mean, I think it's important that some brands will, but I've seen other ones like, you know, there's certain large cannabis companies that have come to Illinois or Pennsylvania and, and the success they've had has been sort of muted depending on the form factor. I think there's something about low dose sessionable beverages that is so ubiquitous in everything we do in society that really spoke to us in general. And so we got excited about Jake and Lucas founders and what they were able to do on the branding side specifically. But it was at the time, you know, and, and now it's really ramped up in popularity in that low-dose sessional beverage space. But at the time, it was sort of the, the leading one that I saw and the only one doing it truly in the low-dose space. I saw Keith Cola and several other ones doing, you know, maybe five, but typically like 10 milligrams. And you've got Major doing 100 milligrams of THC. And again, I think that they're all chasing after the same customer for the most part, which is the existing cannabis consumer that is probably uses on the heavier side and uses mostly traditional form factors. I mean, even if they're vaping or they're using flour um, or even if they're using edibles, you're sort of chasing that same customer. What I really am intrigued by the low-dose sessional beverage space is we're going to get some of those traditional users, but what we're going to do is bring in everyone who's not going into dispensaries right now. Mm -hmm. And I think we continue to see that, you know, even in Chicago, it's perfectly legal for people over 21 to buy cannabis. And weekly, I have people going, hey, can you pick me up some products? Because they're uncomfortable with walking in, especially mostly because they just don't know what to do. Yep. They, you, know, you go into this foreign environment, you have to pay cash, 
you have to talk to someone about something you have absolutely no knowledge about and probably haven't used cannabis a long time. If I go try this beverage, it's really low dose. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to be out of control. This maybe it's your first time in, in 10 years or a year or two. I think you're going to like this experience. And because they're doing nano emulsification, things like that, it's going to really hit you much faster. And so you're really in control of your own high for the first time, instead of hitting flour, which might be harsh on your lungs or taking edible and waiting 45 minutes to see what happens, you know? Um, absolutely. And I certainly have come across a lot of people, um, particularly women, to be frank, that really like the effect and like very slight buzz uh, of a can or two cans even. That's one thing people like about it too, is they can have more than one you know, which is, which I've often said that about edibles, like, why can't they make each gummy like one milligram so that I can eat, you know, eight of them or whatever, like, that's really what I want to do. Um, but that's, that's very, very interesting what you say about the brands in Illinois, and then MSOs in California. Why do you think there is such a strict divide there? I mean, most of these MSOs, particularly before this year, nothing in California, right? It was all kind of small stuff or California grown stuff, you know? Um, why do you think that is? Why do you think there's such a big divide? I think for a lot of these MSOs, you know, like the GTIs and the Veranos, you've got guys with operational experience that are looking at this, like, I'm going to go after the highest margin opportunity states in existence and start there and I'll trickle down. And so, You've got your Illinois and your Pennsylvanias and your Ohio's and, and, and Maryland and states like that, uh, where you can achieve great margins and great financials. And you've really got the, the moat and the oligopoly is kind of in place, even if that over time, let's say, begins to change. Right now, they go, this is where I'm going to focus my time, my energy, my resources. And then you go to sort of like, well, what's the, the next set of states? You know, and you've got sort of like, let's say, Arizona and Florida. Some people going after Florida opening stores, other people are arguing, you know, that it's going to be an okay state over time, just given the, the, the vertically integrated nature and the amount of stores opening, you're starting to see several players in Florida have discounts on, on prices and things like that. And so now there's like this discussion, or at least we're sort of seeing this play out where some MSOs are going heavy in Florida, others are sort of taking it easy and waiting to see how it plays out kind of the same thing in Arizona. And then below that, I'd sort of say like, well, that's kind of like where California is. And eventually, I agree, like you have to go into California, you have to have a presence there if you want to build a national brand. And so I think that we're going to come up to this time where that's what's next, but it's going to be this very selective pathway in where, where GTI might go, I want a limited number of retail stores, maybe I can get a consumption license, you know, maybe you're at Cresco Labs and you go, hey, we're going to go deep you know, they're going to do some distribution and, and some MSOs have seen like, hey, that really impacted their margins, which really affected like the stock price and the multiples they traded on. And so I think there's just this sort of balance and weighing of the different state licensing structure and really trickling down from, you know, what's my best set of states that I want to go after first and keep going down. What I'm excited to see is once you're built out in all those top tier states, if you want to keep moving along, I mean, you got to go elsewhere. And so eventually that's going to have to lead you to the, you know, going deep in Florida, going to Arizona, let's say going into Michigan, which is a highly competitive state and Colorado and California. I think those are all next for the MSOs at some point. How about New York? What's your prediction there? Yeah. And you, I mean, you know, we're talking on uh Tuesday the 10th and, and Cuomo just resigned. And it, it's funny just to like track what people are sort of saying, like, what does that mean for, for progress? 
I've got a couple uh, friends that I know well that are working on some like social equity brand plays in New York and things like that, that they're getting excited about. But it seems like that continues to be, you know, 24 months out, something like that at, at a minimum. I also think we're starting to see, you know, we kind of saw this in Georgia to, to an extent, either people are starting to frown upon the power that I think the MSOs have in some way especially since they're like not based in New York. So I could see some element of pushback when it comes to ensuring that there's social equity players involved and, and really like a hyper local focus as well. You know, we saw that like in Georgia in terms of who won, truly won for a reason. I mean, she, Kim is like right across the, the panhandle there mm -hmm. and she really has boots on the ground and a presence there. And then a lot of people really well connected to Georgia politics won as well. And so it may not reflect that exactly, but I think it's going to sort of continue to, to, to rhyme with that narrative in New York. And the MSOs, who already have a very strong presence right now, are just going to have to sort of carefully navigate what the best way is forward so that there isn't really just like this big pushback, I think, from them being like the big white guys kind of controlling cannabis like they are right now. Mm -hmm. um interesting that you mentioned that uh regardless of how many equity programs we seem to talk about or implement the heads of all these companies are still white dudes and look i don't want to pass judgment whether that's right or wrong that's not really my place it is just interesting that that's still happening in what's supposed to be this new big open opportunity industry um do you see it that way? Or I know it's kind of a delicate subject, but I think it's interesting. Yeah, you know, we we made an investment in a minority owned uh, group, and we're not really sharing like who that is right now until sort of more is released about it. But but they are, you know, the most impressive group, one of the most impressive groups I've seen sort of period. And, and there's something unique about their backgrounds and what they're doing. You know, they're, I wouldn't consider them a social equity group, but they are a 100% minority owned run cannabis company that we're very excited about. And I think there's something unique about sort of what their track history outside of cannabis, operationally founding companies, running companies, that type of thing that we're excited about. So we are seeing that and we want to continue to support that. I agree. I mean, we're, we're at ground zero right now in Illinois watching these social equity licenses roll out for dispensaries and craft growers and processors and talking to a number of groups and sort of seeing how this is, the, the dance is happening, as you say. And so I'm talking to like, reporters and other investors of like what that looks like. And, and, and the dance is really this big play between the social equity minority owned groups that have connections to politics locally are, are sort of like one batch of groups that are doing well. And then I would say the group of social equity applicants that really don't have operational experience, but are basically aligned with an MSL. And so that's sort of like another batch we're saying. And then I think the third batch is they're, they're going to win the licenses and probably offered more money than they've seen before. And there's a good chance they will just sell. And there's an argument to be made about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Some people who I think are purists are, well, this was built for them to be involved in the cannabis space, but it's also generational wealth producing event for that person or group of people and their families to then go and make other investments. And so that would kind of be my argument is there, there's this big confluence of events and groups kind of you know navigating and like, we're interested to see sort of how that plays out. But I think those are sort of the, the big players and movements going on, at least in Illinois. And I think on some level, we're going to see that play out in other states too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's well said. For me, it's just ripe for fraud, right? Like, and, and we've seen this in California already where it's like, okay, you have this minority owner 
And then like, they're just finding other ways to profit share or whatever, to basically just use them as a figurehead or a token or whatever. And it's like, does that really solve the problem here? Like business is a meritocracy, no matter whether you like it or not, it just is. And I think, look, I'm, I'm a free capitalist. I think when you start to mess around with that, you don't get the best results for anyone, for consumers, for whoever, you know? So look, it's a tricky topic, but um, I don't know. I guess I won't get too political. Uh, so one <laughs> of the things that that pegs California is a really pro- big problem in California is a black market. Um, and a lot of the, the weed that's grown in California uh, illegally is shipped to other places like Illinois and yep. the East Coast and New York or whatever. How much are you seeing that? What's sort of like the vibe on the ground there about legal and illegal weed? Yeah, I think you have your more casual users and newer users. Like when I walk into a dispensary and I frequently do, we'll, we'll go to different ones just to see who's there, talk to the bud tender, ask them about some of the brands we're invested in, how they're doing and like what they're seeing. And I'll frequently be next to, you know, a baby boomer asking very specific questions about needs they have from a medical side or a wellness side. I'm always intrigued by that. But I think you're right. When when we look at the existence of the black market and why it's still there, the taxes in a lot of these states are extremely high. And I think it makes it difficult for primarily legacy high volume cannabis users that probably skew heavily male to continue using their dealer. When Illinois' medical pilot program launched, I saw a lot of like Colorado and California cannabis products start to come into Illinois. And so rather than your dealer coming and offering you, you know, a higher end version, a lower end version of flour, all of a sudden they've got tinctures and, and edibles and a number of other things. And they're coming in with sort of like the, the backpack and opening it up. And you've got like a suite of things to sort of choose from. That really kind of coincided with like that going on where I think a lot of these dealers said, hey, my business might be threatened here in the near future. Let me sort of up the opportunity or the, the skews and form factors that I'm going to offer. And so I think that, you know, that continues to be the case, you know, at a discount. And, and a lot of that packaging looks extremely legitimate and, and for the most part probably is. And so I think there's an argument to be made that that will continue to be a big presence if it's that much cheaper. But I do think that there's a big segment of users who are going to be more comfortable with buying from the legally regulated uh, market within the state that they live in. You know, whether that comes to what went into the growing process and things like that. Even if I think this is coming from Colorado, maybe it just has fancy packaging and someone made it in their backyard and didn't use all the standards and practices that a company in Illinois or in Pennsylvania or wherever you are would use. And a lot of people, I think, are going to be increasingly comfortable with that. We just really got to get the taxes down to like make this a viable yeah, make long-term it solution. Yeah. Right. I find it interesting that, you know, people in our generation are so obsessed with where their fish is sourced and like right. tomatoes, like shade grown or some shit like that. But then like, <laughs> we're like, oh yeah, just give me whatever weed you're smoking, you know? And I'm like, how do, how do those things, you know, coincide? Like, it's really crazy to me. I guess maybe these are like drunk decisions or something that people are making here. I'm not sure. Um, but even in situations where pricing is more similar, there's a real culture of it here. There's almost like a, like a anti the man, like counterculture underground scene here that people are like proud of in California. And it's super frustrating if you're trying to do things the right way, you know, because to your point, sure. If, if in Illinois you can buy a product 
within a reasonable range of the cost of the illegal market, they'll probably do it, right? Because it is an economics question. Here, it's a little more complicated than that. And it's weird. It's weird. Like, I'll give you an example. Uh, two or three weeks ago, they made like a billion dollar plus illegal bust in California. And my social feed is all made up of people that are like, oh, they're screwing over, you know, weed and like, oh, the man strikes again. And I'm like, guys, like, you're like trying to make money in this industry. I don't understand. It's very bizarre and something pretty unique to the cannabis industry, I would say. I, I do wonder going off that point, and I've been reading a little bit more about this. I think like where the MSOs are situated right now and just a number of other large growers in let's just say the, the newer states, not the, the legacy ones like your Oregon, your Washington, your, your Colorado and California. Right now, I think the big players can grow better flour than the mom and pop owned ones. And so I think there's that premium given to them right now. I'm curious to see as they really scale up and become even larger. I mean, really large grow houses is a totally different environment when you're talking about several hundred thousand square feet or a million square feet for an indoor cultivation facility than 50,000. What happens when you sort of become the, the Budweiser of cannabis in that way? And there's this inversion, right? Where those people that really valued what was early on the premium flower go, hey, I really want the craft one now. And they'll sort of shift over to the to the group that culturally fits maybe the narrative that you're talking about more, right? More that like illegal grow in, in California is more like the small batch grow in the rest of the country. And there's that like inversion of like people's preferences and those might start commanding like craft beer, uh, a higher premium on their products. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's very interesting comparison. And I'm glad you brought up Budweiser. I often say like, I don't want to be smoking Coors Light or whatever right, right. in my life. And I think most people are like that. Um, but craft beer, you might know better than I do. It's still a pretty small percentage of the overall beer sales in the US, right? And, and I think if most of the MSOs have it their way, they're really looking to create a Bud Light or Coors Light right here. That's where all the money is. So doesn't that mean eventually we're going to get more, not bad, but average weed? <laughs> Isn't that really where we're headed here? I think it, it could be if that the pickup and cultivation size plays out in that direction where if you really scale, that sort of starts becoming the norm. I think it's interesting though, like when you look at California, I talked to lots of brands who are sort of like white labeling their flower and creating a brand behind that. And they go, hey, there's an insatiable demand for premium flour in California. And there's just not enough supply of what qualifies as premium flour. Mm -hmm. And so I think people underestimate how complicated high-end flour is, but I agree with you eventually we're going to really like commodify this and sort of move into this. Are you drinking Coors Light or Miller Light? They're really the same in the end and they're both not that great. You know, is that the direction we're going to head in? I'll be curious to see what, when that is, but I think it will be slower than people think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree with that. The best way it was explained to me one time was it's very easy to grow cannabis. It's very hard to grow good cannabis. Um, cause it does, it, it grows like a weed, just not in the direction you want sometimes. Um, right. uh, so black market, we talk about black market. What's your thoughts on like federal legalization, decriminalization, safe banking. I mean, the banking stuff is one of the big last hurdles that we have in this industry. Is that coming soon? And I, I know you don't know better than anybody else, but what's your prediction? So I, I think over the last few years, a lot of investors that I would see, that I would talk to, that I would see networking 
you know, on forums, we're hyper caught up in following every bit of news related to when is safe banking going to happen? You know, I think Boris from CureLeaf comes out with a new prediction every few months about when it's going to happen. And then people are sort of let down when it doesn't. You know, and I've been following the, the, the space long enough that in, you know, 2017, 2018, people were still talking about, you know, Trump's going to legalize it for, you know, to win the next election and things like that. And so I think we've moved away from predictions when it comes to like legislative change. I'm not really expecting a lot right now. I don't think we can get a lot done in general. And so because of that, and, and I think there's a number of MSO executives that talk about this too, like Ben Culver from GTI will say this. And he always talks about like head down, execute. It really doesn't change. Like, I don't mind where we are right now in terms of this state by state sort of like slow change in the right direction. Now, again, I think you can make arguments that if you're not tied to the MSOs, you're kind of pissed off at what the market looks like. But if you are, this is kind of a, a, a very good setup to just accretively have different states legalize and you can sort of continue to do things that you're doing and have that work well. Having said that, there's a massive discount that we're trading at for all these public companies. You know, unless you're a non-plant touching company, you're directly listing on the US exchange, you're trading on the Canadian Securities Exchange or the NEO, or you're, you're doing some amount of shares on the OTC, and you've got this massive discount and you're really not living up to your potential. So as an investor, that does kind of piss me off and I would love for that to change. But operationally, I still love how these companies are executing. So, you know, I think it's going to continue to take time and, and I think it's going to be safe banking plus some clarity that gives protection to the exchanges for them to get comfortable with the actual uplisting. But I don't know that I'm really putting a timetable on it. You know, you got the midterms coming up. Some people are saying like, oh, it'll be next year. But in the midterm year with a number of other things that you want to be focused on, it's very easy for one side to blame the other side to be, to be too focused on weed and not focused on the biggest things happening in our country right now. And so there's always going to be a reason why it shouldn't happen. At some point, I think it just will and the right confluence of events will be put in place. But I don't spend a lot of my time worried about that as much as I'd love to have a really nice valuation, like a fair valuation, as I would say, on these MSOs. Mm -hmm. Do you think the MSOs are short-sighted sometimes? There's a couple problems that I see with their strategy. One is there's been an incredible amount of money put into retail, right? And although I'm not saying dispensers are going away, if you think about a world where you can drop it in the mail, um, doesn't that mean a lot less? I mean, we're going to buy it probably from Amazon eventually or Uber Eats or something like that, right. right? That's a huge problem, isn't it? I agree. And I think about that a lot too. I think it comes down to, I think you were right that that's the eventuality that we're in. It, the question is, how long does that take? And so without naming names, there's some MSOs I talk to that are very focused on the current market is if this is the market they'll always be in. And I don't think it's necessarily wrong to plan for that for right now. There's other MSOs that, you know, let's say we'll do sale leasebacks with all their cultivation facilities, right? They don't want to own it because they're like, hey, we don't want to be a grower anymore. So they just do sale leasebacks and they focus on the middle verticals, you know, branded products and the distribution of those products at scale through retail channels. Maybe they'll have some retail channels to sort of pad that, but really it's just the distribution of their own branded products to get the margin profile they want. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting to sort of see that very different opinion. Now, I think the groups that are doing the sale leasebacks thinking about the future are right, but is that 10 years from now? Is that 12 years from now? Is that seven or eight years from now? I think it's hard to say. I think that the other argument that the, the ones focus on the now are, this has been such a job creator for so much of small town America, especially, revitalizing small town America everywhere. 
I have a hard time seeing, you know, how that's all just sort of all those jobs are essentially just shipped back, let's say to the West coast. Cause you go, Hey, this is the, the cheapest environment to grow, even indoor cultivation, things like that. So there is a lot of production going on right now for sort of like what the structure is going to look like in the immediate term and probably the medium term. The gamble is how fast does that change? And then on your question on delivery, I agree. I think delivery ends up winning out, but, and this is what I kind of think is interesting. We've got a ton of existing cannabis users, like the heavier users going into the retail stores. And I use that example of the Chardonnay mom who still won't go into a dispensary, but will ask me to pick up some products or I'll bring them a beverage and they'll try it and they'll use it. They may continue to be reluctant to go into, and we may hit a point where they really never get comfortable with the dispensary. But if you give them an app, if they can go on iHeartJane.com, wherever they are, or Ease, and have it delivered to their door, I think night and day they start to do that. And so we'll accelerate that turnover of the, the non-traditional cannabis user like the Chardonnay mom, who I, who I think is a massive untapped market. It's just going to take a lot of work to get there. But I think they're much more likely to use delivery. And given the fact that it will take so long to convert them, I think delivery ends up working out because I just don't think they're going to get super comfortable with dispensaries. Ever. I don't think they're ever going to get comfortable with it. I, I totally agree. I mean, no different than like a lot of people don't like liquor stores either. You know, it's kind of, it's kind yeah, of people are just ordering all their booze on, on online through Drizzly or whatever else you're using and aren't stepping foot into there's too many choices and it's confusing and there's 20 Austrian wines and you're like, what, you know, what am I doing here? <laughs> right. I also think that the killer form factor for cannabis has not been created yet. Um, and what I mean by that is like, we're, we're sort of skirting the edges. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but like the beverages are appealing to people, like the gummies are appropriate to people, you know, but, but I think that there is another product coming that's going to be really, really good for the demographic that you're talking about. And I think it's going to pass the dispensaries by because it's not going to be a milligram to dollar ratio. That's not going to matter. And that's the way the dispensaries are all set up. Um, it's going to be interesting to see. Obviously, I don't know what that product is, but somebody should create it. <laughs> I do think it's an interesting misconception, though. Or, and, and this is what the culture is, is like if you go in and ask your bud tender, and this is what happened with like the low-dose beverages or even just low-dose edibles like you talked about. Some people just want to microdose. So they're low-dose users in general. They want to take one or two milligrams at a time when they're doing a lot of different things. And so the argument is, how are you ever going to sell that product as if it's directly correlated to its THC content? And there is that segment of the population that's only going to buy something based on how much THC it has. But that's not how anything else works in most other CPG areas in general, right? You're not buying alcohol by its alcohol content, right? You're not buying Everclear just for that. You're going, what do I enjoy the most? And, and you know, what's the right branding? What's the right setting? What, what makes me feel the way I want to feel? I mean, I've made the Everclear example a bunch of times on this podcast, but like, I don't buy the soy sauce with the most soy in it. Either. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, I, like I don't even think about that. Like, yeah. um, uh, so we talked a lot about the U.S. We haven't talked so much about internationally. What says you there? I mean, is it it's tempting, but there's a lot of opportunity here too. I, I'm not including Canada. Obviously, you've invested in Canada. Uh, we actually haven't invested in Canada at all. No, nothing? No, no. Okay. We, we've looked at it and we've looked international. We've gotten close on a few opportunities. We saw some interesting ones too. You know, there's an investment in North Macedonia. My grandfather's from there. And we looked at that. They were going to import cannabis in Europe. And then there was all kinds of corruption issues. And it was sort of exactly what I thought was going to happen. Mm -hmm. I think the problem is, 
I mean, the same way that every U.S. state is like its own country, all these European countries are sort of doing different things, trying to figure out their own way. What I would say is from having been an investor and talked to uh, people that like run companies in the U.S. with offices in Europe, they frequently talk about going to the offices in Europe and just saying that the way that Europeans and the rest of the world think about business and, and branding and capitalism and like being a raging capitalist like most Americans are is a very different thing. And I think that that's true. And so when we think about the way the rest of the world is thinking about cannabis, it's there's this black market, let's tolerate it. Hey, we're going to let the pharmacists kind of go the medical route and prescribe it for very limited things. And we're going to slowly get there. Whereas I think in the US, even when it's the medical route, one, there's a lot of us, but when a state decides they want a medical program, they're going to go for it. They're not going to stop the brands from creating their own brands. They're not going to stop the retail stores from creating their own brands as well. And they're not going to let companies and sort of capitalism run through the traditional motions that we do as a country. And so I just, as an American, am far more interested and familiar with the way that we do that. And I just think it's better for shareholder return to go that route than for the Europeans to sort of decide where they are, because they're really in between let's tolerate the black, you know, the black market, we'll kind of go to the medical market, but they can't really make a decision. Whereas like when we say we're going recreational, like we're going to go recreational and we're going to really go for it. And that I find that much more appealing. Well, that's where the money is, right? You know, <laughs> for sure. That's where the money yeah. is. Um, yeah. I, I think, look, it sounds really good to say we're investing in Colombia, right? But, but like, there's a reason not everyone is doing that. And the reason is, it's very unclear. I mean, take it out of cannabis. People don't like to invest in a lot of different countries all over the world because they don't have the same legal system. They don't have the same recourse, all these different things. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, but like, I don't see an international trade of cannabis of any size or any significance for a long time, I think. Yeah, I agree. And, and a lot of these opportunities are, you know, I saw an opportunity in Jamaica to import into Mexico, you know, and now I need to pay attention to each country's respective laws, you know, the companies being formed, what all of that looks like, and then assume they even want to import that in the first place. I mean, at any point, they could just go, well, we're just going to go it ourselves. Why would you not? This is a job creator. And so there's just so many more factors that I think you're like dealing with when it comes to like the importation of cannabis. It's different, I think, if you're looking at a respective country. Again, I think a lot of these opportunities are, you know, I'm a, a country in the Caribbean or, or South America, and I'm going to import to, to Mexico or to Europe or to Canada or something like that. But then when you look at those markets like Canada and Europe, either they have way too much product like Canada, or it's Europe where they're like really soft about progress. And in the end, they may just go, hey, we'll do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, you've learned an incredible amount in this industry. Clearly, like you're as well versed as any VC or any institutional investor out there. Are you looking for more money? Do you think about doing a venture fund? Like, what do you what do you think about just for yourself? Yeah, but, you know, our family office has talked about this at length, and and I think there was a point at which if we had been more comfortable where we are today a couple of years ago, I think we would have done it. I think one of the things we haven't talked about as much, Brandon, is like, I think we're hitting a point where, I don't know if there's an inversion, but there is a change in the risk reward profile of the cannabis opportunities we're seeing out there. And so I think if you talk to a fund, they'll never tell you this because they're busy raising their next fund to keep making money and keep deploying capital. But this is true. I mean, one of the reasons we never invest in a fund is 
we saw several funds invest in uh, like early 2019 when all the, the companies went public and were super overvalued. They kept going at it. Whereas we pulled back and we said, whoa, this looks overvalued. Let's take a pause. Mm-hmm. And so by that very fact, there's a lot of funds out there where I'm like, hey, I don't really love this structure because it's like their investment imperative is to just keep deploying capital. Yeah. And so when we think about whether we want to raise a fund, I think if this was beginning of last year or even a couple of years ago, we would have thought maybe a little more strongly about it. Part of it is I don't want to invest and potentially lose other people's money. I guess I'm more comfortable losing my own money or, or my family office's money. That's part of it. But, but the other part is we just think that there's been a market change in sort of the private opportunities out there. I think there's more capital. Uh, you know, the valuations on the private side are higher. And a lot of the easy money has been made. And so you, there's a couple of growth stage opportunities, let's say, in B and C rounds of like companies whose business model is really playing out pretty nicely. You can kind of squeeze into that. Otherwise, it's like, let me get really early in an upstart dispensary in Michigan, a social equity group, or a brand in California that's, and there's 25 other brands are competing against in the form factor. And so you just go like, is that really worth it? And so right now, there's like a little more of a pause. We're like, hey, I really like where a lot of these public market MSOs are sitting at. Let's take a little more of a, a pause on the private side. So I think all those kinds of things are sort of just like forming our decision making at the moment. That's awesome. Um, thank you for giving us that, that insight. It's really awesome. Uh, I want to shift a little bit, just talk about you in the last couple minutes here. Um, when you're done uh, learning and investing and everything for the day, um, what kind of cannabis do you like? Are you, are you a consumer? Um, how has it evolved since you got into the cannabis industry, I guess? Yeah, I think it's constantly evolving. I feel like it's, for the most part, constantly evolving for a lot of people, just in like the dosage and the form factor and the way in which they enjoy cannabis. And even, you know, how I got high 10 years ago, is very high from how I get today. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm curious to see how that continues to evolve. I think there's, there's a few things. Uh, we're investors in Can and then Wonder. Wonder is another low-dose beverage that I, I really love. Um, yeah, I know Alexi and, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Gr- great guy and really like what he's doing and super excited about just low-dose beverages. And so both of those have really become like ubiquitous, like in my household with my fiance and, and, and my family's too. And then I think there's other things like, you know, Cookies came out with a CBD flower that's got like essentially no THC and it like looks, smells and hits exactly like cannabis. And sometimes... I just don't want to be high at 930 when I might get a call and I have to respond to something, let's say. And you just go, I really love the smell of cannabis, the terpenes and sort of the feel of it without necessarily getting super high. And so I've, I've noticed I'm mixing that in. Sometimes I'm mixing that with like nice. orange heroin as a flower by GTI that I love. You know, I'm sort of like trying different things, trying new products. And then, you know, my favorite thing is when we are ta- talking to brands, when I get samples, I mean, that is one of my favorite things to do. It's just, it's just fun to, you know, pop rocks, cannabis and you know, cannabis teas and things like that. It's just, it's just fun to experiment and see where this industry is going because it's got such potential. It's one of the best parts of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Bring me free shit all the time. Right. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, well, this has been awesome, man. Thank you so much for joining. You were super open and honest. I couldn't ask for more. Um, how can we help you? Are you, uh, yeah, I don't know. How can we help you? Do you hire any people, any more people ever or... Um, yeah, we oh, might, yeah, yeah, we might be down the road. We haven't right now we're, we're talking about, I think at some point hiring an analyst, but we'd probably like hire a person of color in Chicago from like an impoverished neighborhood. Like that would be a focus of ours. And that is a big focus. We have this big ESG impact investing mandate to what we do as a family office. And we're really trying to like firm that up. So we love Chicago and what it's done for us. And we're hoping to give back as much as we can. So that's, 
I think going to be a big focus of ours going forward, like in our lives. Um, and then, yeah, people can, can check out the website. It's VG invests. That's V as in Vladimir, which is my dad's uh, first name, G Gasovich, our last name invest.com. And then uh, I'm on LinkedIn as well under Alexander Gasovich. Nice. Um, good stuff, man. Thank you again. This was so fun. I got to get out there, maybe do a little, uh, cannabis Silicon Valley tour, you know, Meet definitely. Yeah, I'd love to be involved. Yeah. Good stuff, man. Well, thank you again. And thanks for listening guys.